0: To take a sabbatical, festive break on the website. Um, the podcasts will continue uh, right through until the new year. This allows me to catch up, as I think we're pretty much a page behind in terms of the actual website for these podcasts. So if I can um, pick up a couple of shows, uh, then you know that will narrow the gap and eventually take us to that nirvana spot uh, where we um, have uh the podcast and the article almost uh, tangibly and irreplaceably and professionally and in some respects being available at the same time but we'll get there. might take another year of chasing my tail but we will get there so thanks for pressing play. Uh, If you didn't know, if you stumbled on the wrong thing, if you're looking for some political or historical uh, podcast you've actually reached into the murky depths of whiskey and we are talking uh, specifically about uh, a Lost Inverness distillery which was situated in the, the area of Muirtown on the banks of the Caledonian Canal uh, for probably just uh, give or take about 100 years of existence as a physical structure, probably just short of that actually. Which makes me think just how disposable society's become since and everything's thrown away and unrepairable these days. But anyway, we won't go down that tangent. We're here to talk about Glenvor, and in these episodes we'll talk about two articles on the website. So in this particular one we're going to be talking a little bit about the Glen Glenvor logbook entry from the 7th of September 1966, which corrects the logbook entry from the previous show uh, that we talked about being a cancelled page which was very rare to see still in the logbook but there it was in situ when i did the research the other thing we'll be touching upon is one of the plans now certainly we've had a lot of plans on the website and this 1926 additions to the manager's house at glenvore which was published back in september seems like an almighty time ago but um we'll be talking a little bit about that and since then we've really had a, a run through um Plans. Uh, in terms of the plans where we are at the moment, I am doing uh, 19, late 1940s um, not malt barns, I want to say something else, but um, we've got that, and then I think there's one more set of plans, and then after that, I really need to find out where any post-1960s requests, which reside in the Inverness, sort of town hall planning areas, if they've not migrated over to the um, archive, the Highland Archive, then where are they? Because they must still exist. And we do know that Glenmore did have some work done on it throughout the 1960s. And although we haven't seen any in the 70s, who knows what um, files we may have. So that's something I do wish to pursue. That might be opening up another archive of delight and uh, intrigue, but, you know, these things have to be done. Um, as we're a few years into this research project, we have to keep turning those stones and seeing what resides underneath. So, going back to the 7th of September 1966, so, as we noted, you know, this is a sort of a correctional page of a previous entry, and it's all about the attendance of a, a said watcher. Um, at the distillery, while uh, essentially what they've described as reconstruction of warehouses, uh, I don't think we have they, these were warehouse co- reconstructions as such. I think we're maybe talking about um, some internal works rather than uh, a fully fledged reconstruction. Uh, we do know that there were warehouses constructed at Glenvo. These Uh, Thanks to Dave from the Inverness history Forum, these are on the back end of the site the most southern edge of the site and could only be reached actually by going through the original numbers one and two warehouses which formed a natural barrier on the southern edge of the site so very inaccessible these look to be more large scale uh, warehousing that we see today but it wouldn't have been these um, because Uh, Mr. Urquhart was only required for three whole days and half a day. Now you can't build a warehouse no matter how good you are of those sizes within that short period of time. Uh, Perhaps I do think this was some sort of internal work at the warehouse where obviously you needed somebody representing the crown to watch the workmen because they would have been working in and around uh, maturing whiskey and you know, temptation is a wonderful thing if you do give into it. So uh, I'm sure he did that well. And um, we also know the hours he worked from nine to five, so pretty typical uh, white van man hours these days. Uh, they never seem to be starting work at eight o'clock when I go past the bakers, but um, you know, a lunch break as well of half an hour between 12 and 12 30. So it gives us a little insight into the watchers' arrangements and also their pay as well. And that pay actually would have come by the distiller so he would have had to pay the crown um to have this service to be uh, i guess on the right side of the law and the cost of attendance so i thought that was quite an interesting entry from djr hughes i think it is signed at the bottom um to the commissioners just gives us a little bit of insight into the workings of the excisement and um you know their ongoing efficiency and professionalism the other entry which is probably a little bit more exciting for some people because um, these things are more visual is the plans um, so as i said we're jumping back to june 1926 and what is entitled telford street additions to manager house Glenford ford distillery of that month so this goes back to the time when you had managers as a perk of the job had uh, distillery accommodation on site um it was convenient for them the workforce and the excisemen and the owners if they weren't an owner themselves um you had that power uh, and, you know apart from the excisement the distillery manager was probably the next most important thing although the, i guess the stillman would have uh, you know disputed that but you, you have Sort of a chain of command you know if something goes wrong they need to immediately report it to the distillery manager who then reports it to the exciseman. So there was a pathway you know and we've seen that in some of the historical uh, Glenvorre distillery logbook entries. you know it's a case of phone the manager, get a hold of the manager and relay the information and then the process starts. So no surprise to see that Glenvorre had one on site. We certainly know Glenn Alban had one on site. Glenn open one is traditionally more I believe more prestigious, fanciful, just because of the size of it. And perhaps it was a little bit further back from Telford Street, you know, which was a very thriving, busy area. So having a, a house facing Telford Street perhaps wouldn't be um I wouldn't say comfortable, but certainly as uh Peaceful is probably a better word word to put it than, uh, you know, the Glenalbin one, which I think was sort of down the sort of side street. Um, So it was a little bit more distance from Telford Street. But, you know, we're going to touch upon both these managers' houses in the coming years. And also what I think is interesting in this article sort of sheds light on it is what happened when Glenvore took over Alban in 1920. Did the, the manager's house become, still remain separate entities for each distillery where they repurposed or reused in some other shape or form and this will this will come to uh, light in some of our plans we have as well I do have um, a huge amount of Glen Alban plans I haven't uh, worked my way through them yet I'm just scratching my head as I think about the work on that site but uh, I think it's very very likely we're gonna get some clues on the Glen Alban end into the site side of things so part of the reason for doing it but Uh, Glen Alban plans will be coming in due course and I think that's great because if anything now I mean the free into Vanessa is relatively unknown unrepresented in all books any shape or form uh, amongst whiskey enthusiasts Glenmore is probably the most prominence in terms of a whiskey because it was widely available and supported not only as a single malt by the owners but also Gordon McPhail uh, when it moved into DCL so there's a lot of Glenmore out there compared to some closed distilleries and most of it is pretty good uh, Glen Alban, In comparison we know mckinley and burnley didn't really rate it as a single malt it was more for blending i think probably a lot of that comes down to john Burney, even though he had some affection and he previously managed glen and turned its fortunes around i think it was a very different style of whiskey to glenvore and i think you can do that if you're very fortunate to have side by side comparisons but you know that's not to diminish or slate glenolbin in any shape or form i've had some lovely glenolbins and i still have a couple of bottles i think as well i think it's a, a very gentle and yeah not commercial but almost space uh, highland style you know whereas glenvore really can be uncompromising um almost a rival for some of the milburns i've had over the years but anyway get back to the article so as always we've um included images and thanks to the Highland Centre for that and that's I was doing these images and looking at the plan which is essentially adding a, an extension on the back uh, beside the servants bedroom and uh, wash house putting a, a new bathroom and a bedroom so they're extending the sort of managers facilities um, perhaps the family or they could have guests staying. Um, my mind started to drift, uh, as it normally does. And I'm wondering, well, could these plans be mislabeled? Could these actually be Glen Alban? The answer would be no, because in the article, if you look, and I'll link it down below, we actually have a Glen Alban plan from, I think that's from 1895. And that's unpublished. I haven't um, done the full work on that yet. But there will be more of that in due course as I said so we've ruled out that Avenue but it did still get me thinking what was the purpose of these two managers houses what was going to happen because something had to give I think you know to have two managers houses pretty much very very close sites perhaps wouldn't be the best way of working Uh, and you know buildings and particularly for housing people probably you know would be a valuable resource at certain distilleries as well uh, so what I do and always going the extra step sort of go into the, sort of the historical Inverness borough directory and this can really take us back um, quite a considerable period and what it does show us is who when they are captured it's almost a little bit like uh, a simplified census in a way it shows us who's staying at uh, essentially what is glenvore cottage now i think this would be one and the same uh, glenvore cottage would probably be the manager's cottage we do know there were some buildings but we don't know the exact purpose of them so we know for instance um in 1924 uh we know that robert robertson um who would be he's noted as brewer there but eventually he would become uh manager glenvore and also of um glen alban as well and i think company secretary or along those lines to mckinley and burnley so it would be very prominent uh also mentioned would be um john mcrae and john fraser were noted at the property at this time so wanted to have a little look and you know searching through things as you do um Extensive research of the 1920s directories to determine whether Robert Robertson's move-in date at John Burney's Glenoban house signifying his own elevation in status, you know, replacing John Burney, who's probably maybe wanting to move on, maybe more from a distiller, distillery manager perspective, and more into the, the co-owner of both distilleries. And the pages do give us that in the article, we do see that as well um I've always been fascinated by the split between John Burney and Glen Alban we know that uh, William Burney described it as a squabble Um, so it probably gives the indication it wasn't um, mutual a mutual agreement basically uh, John was refused a share in the company of Glen Alban which was getting floated I think in the early 90s 1890s again something we will be looking into more Um, you said no, and of course John feeling he had played a major role in turning around the fortunes of the plant, which is very true, um, moved on. But we've never really gotten to the bottom of what was said or just how, I guess, I was trying to think of the right word sometimes. Amicable. And I don't think it probably was very amicable from what we know. And also William Burney was never one to hold his tongue in certain situations. And I think, you know, he's put it down as a squabble, um, which comes from a 1971 thesis um, from R.B. Weir, uh, who managed to speak to John and, sorry, William. And I, I wish he asked him some other questions because to have that resource in front of you would have been fantastic. But in the article, we are looking at flow of who was staying at which property thanks to the borough directory and it does eventually show us that by 1930 at uh, glen Alban house has robert robertson so that seems to us where we know john has moved out of the sort of distillery residences and i actually think he's probably he's he's never been in them as such you know he would have been yes person the controlling person the most important on both sites whether before or at, you know uh, post acquisition of Glen Albin in 1920 and Glen bore throughout you know he would have been the person to go to um, we know uh, that he had a farm property on a I think is the, probably the terrible way to pronounce it but we know he lived nearby Uh, and that would have been his residence and not the residence on site he would have had an office he would have had definitely an office and working across from Neil M. Gunn we know as well so that happened but his own sort of personal property would have been set back from the distilleries and we know that is the case because recently we've unearthed as part of the Glenvoore document collection that we've acquired an 1894 invoice which uh, from a uh, slating company to John Burney, and they list uh, his address not as um, Glen distillery although that is mentioned yeah, they actually mention it as his farm address so at the time uh, it would be really interesting to research the history of that site the farm still stands that the house anyway and you'll see this in a, in a coming uh, 2024 article um, when it was built that would be really interesting uh and you know if john actually bought it or if he actually did commission and purchase the land and build it himself um, which probably would give you the impression of perhaps i don't know how well distillery managers were paid back in the 1880s 1890s or if john maybe had some money behind him when he moved from ben Rinnis to uh inverness not only taking up a distillery manager's position, but also, right, I'm going to make a go of this, I need to buy a property nearby, and this is the ideal one. So, more details, more research, but, you know, if you're really interested into the ebb and flow of distillery managers and managerial houses, then uh, please look at that article, and I know we've discussed it before in a separate podcast, but I do think it's worthwhile, so that is us for this episode thank you for listening and i shall see you again for another december related podcast soon